You are listening to a teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Call to Care. This series explores three groups of people Jesus particularly calls us to care for. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Well, hey, if you're, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to the church, uh, the big idea here for us is that we're trying to follow Jesus. We're trying to get behind his life. Uh, we think his, uh, uh, he has the best life uh, possible. We love him. We want to be like him. We want to follow him. We want to be with him forever. So the big idea is that we're trying to be, we're trying to be like Jesus. And so as a Christian, one of the questions that we would ask ourselves over and over again, maybe 10,000 times in our lifetime is what what does God want from me? What does he want me to do? What does he require of me? Well, the good news is this passage kind of flat out says that. He says, he has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you. But here it is. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before your God. That's what he wants us to do. And we are in this series, uh, The Call to Care. And there is a Christian call to care that uh, the good shepherd, he cares for his sheep. He cares uh, for people, and one of the greatest concerns of God is to is this care for the marginalized and oppressed. Uh, he cares for the marginalized and oppressed, and we're going to talk about that today. Over and over again in the Scripture, God reminds us and really warns His people to look after the foreigner, those who are a stranger amongst us. Don't overlook them. Don't abuse them. Um, he says to look after the orphan and the widow. Uh, to open your life up to the stranger, to seek freedom for the prisoner and the oppressed, to protect the vulnerable and the weak, and in shedding light on the final judgment. Everybody, you know, that's a, something we should want to know about is what's going to happen here at the end. He puts a great deal of emphasis on how we treat the marginalized and the weak and the oppressed in this life. He takes it very, very personally. He says, whatever you do to the least of these, fill in the blank, whatever the least of these are, whatever you do in the least of these, you do unto me. You mess with my family, you mess with me. You mess with the least of these, you mess with me. You don't do to these, if you don't give them a drink of water, if you don't help them, if you don't encourage, if you don't strengthen them, you've not done that for me. He takes it very personally. Jesus wants us to value all human life equally and above anything else. He wants you and I to value all human life equally and above anything else. And the reason why is because humans uh, are uniquely made in the image of God. Have you ever heard the term Imago Dei thrown around? Uh, that's what that means. Genesis one twenty six says this. Then God said, let us make man. That word man just really means mankind. Let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over, every, uh, over, the, uh, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And he said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Human beings have unique and superior value over any creature or creation. Now, we are called to steward creation. We can argue what that looks like. And we do argue what that looks like. But make no mistake that we are called to steward creation. But human beings are 
to be considered because they are more valuable than creation. Jesus says in Luke 12, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not, for you are more valuable than sparrows. In Mark 5, um, there's this man who's been uh, oppressed. He's been, uh, he's been demonized. He's been, his, he's been taken control of by this, these demonic influence. And he was marginalized by society. Every society wanted him out of their city, away from their people, to put him in chains, get rid of him. And Jesus... Um, cast out these demons into a pig, into a into a herd of two thousand pigs, valued at over uh, four hundred thousand dollars. And the owners of these pigs were really upset, but and they were concerned about the value of the pigs. But Jesus was concerned over the value of this human being that everybody else had marginalized. Intellectually, we know this, but we don't treat people this way. We treat our pets better. We, you know, we got little dogs in our purses and we carry them around and we treat our, we value our comfort. We value our ideologies. We value our convenience. We value our power. We value our sense of freedom. We value our right to speak up. We value, we value lots of things more than we value people. So we intellectually believe that, but we don't actually walk that out. C.S. Lewis said this. Now follow me here because he's, He's smarter than usually things that I usually say. And so it may sound weird and strange, but it's just smart. It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person, don't look at anyone, you're looking at me, don't look at me either, um, you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. Basically saying that there are going to be some people that one day will see Jesus and become like them and be pretty remarkable that if you saw him presently that you'd be tempted to worship worship him or else you'll see a horror and a corruption such as you now meet if at all only in a nightmare basically saying there are going to be some who end up in hell and you can't imagine the horror that this person would experience except in a nightmare all day, we, all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortals, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is with mortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Why do we do that? Why don't we value human beings the way God values human beings. It's not because we don't have the right policies and politicians. It's not because we don't have enough education. It's not a matter, it's not a problem with the head. It's a problem with the heart. Long before it was cultural or political, the fight for human dignity, the fight for human rights was this clash between two kingdoms, namely God's kingdom and our kingdom. In God's kingdom, uh, the lion was at peace with the lamb. And everything was as it should be. Everything, there, you know, there were no war diseases. There were no 
Uh, there was none of that. But we did not, we were not content to have someone rule us. We wanted our own independence. We rebelled against the authority of God. We wanted to rule ourselves. And because of that, sin entered the human equation and it fractured everything. And exploitation and murder, murder of innocent life was one of the very first manifestations of the fall. As one brother killed another brother. The anti-gospel rage is murderous. And when you don't stand with God's rule, you stand against God's rule, and you unwittingly subject yourself to demonic influence. Now that sounds spooky and weird, and you probably aren't with it, but the ruler of this age is the one who's behind the injustice. It's not ISIS. It's not Trump. It's not Obama. It's not Hollywood. It's El Diablo. He's the one who's behind this all. He is the enemy of our soul. Jesus said of him, in John 8:44 that he was a murderer from the beginning. And then there are those of us who reject the rule of God um, that Satan unwittingly becomes our father. He's the one that we, whether we realize it or not, want to be like. And he walks around, the Bible says, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour by seducing, him, by seducing us from the, from the one, the only one who is truly loving and truly, truly just to a place of darkness where murder and hate will inevitably manifest. And we have thousands of years of history to back that up. Every society marginalizes and dehumanizes someone. And has murderous actions, hateful actions, and every but no one, no society's ever, rarely has any society knowingly done that because everyone seems right in their own eyes. But the but the the natural manifestation of a soul that rejects. The love of God and the justice of God submits himself to a spirit that will inevitably lead to hate and to murder. But when the enemy comes in like a flood, God raises a standard against him. And that standard is not a political party. It is not a Supreme Court judge, but it is the church of Jesus Christ that is meant to be set up like a city on a hill, a beacon of light that is to give witness to the reign and rule of Jesus who is full of love and full of justice. And the church is not simply a place and should not be a place where we just come together every week for a little devotional so we can be encouraged for our week. That's not what the church is. The church is an act of war. It's an act of war against the forces of darkness behind the hate and the injustice in our world. And that hate and injustice isn't just out there in our world. But if you dare give yourself to a little introspection, you might find that it's in you. This is why God is so ticked off, like in Micah, 
that, you know, the church is just coming together in these vain repetitions, like they're just coming together for these nice little worship services, but they're not taking seriously ju- uh, ju- uh, justice, kindness, and humility. I mean, this is all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the prophets, Ezekiel. I'll read something from um, Isaiah. Please, phone, don't mess up with me now. Your new moons, I'll just start here because this is my phone stopped. Uh, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm wearing a bearing. them. Basically, like your, your, your services, your routines, you kind of get up, stand up, sit down, do your thing, in and out, hour and a half. I'm tired of it. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. God's serious. He wants us to be serious about what he's serious about. He wants us to care. He wants us to care about the oppressed. He wants us to care about the weak. He wants us to care about all those who are marginalized. So who are the oppressed and who are the marginalized? And how should we respond? Well, I'm going to give you a few disclaimers before I jump into this. Uh, One is this is not meant to be a comprehensive list. So if I don't mention your favorite, don't be mad at me. Don't. That's not, it's not meant to be comprehensive. Secondly, I'm going to ask that you would ignore your political affiliation for the next 30 minutes or so. Um, please do that. Because number one, I don't want you to get mad at me. I want you to like me. And if you think too much about your political affiliation, you will get mad at me. Um, well, And you will not be able to see what God wants you to see. If you see, if you see justice primarily through the lens of a political party, and they both stink, by the way, in case you're wondering where I'm going with this. If you see justice through the lens of any political party, you will fail to see the justice of God. You will fall short. Pick anyone you want. Doesn't matter. The gospel is an equal opportunity offender. You will miss the justice of God. So will you please just imagine that you are apolitical for a few moments. And then thirdly, my main point today is just simply that we care for any human being that is oppressed or marginalized or somehow devalued. That we care that our heart goes out to them and that some level we are motivated to do something about it by seeking his word and following the promptings of the spirit. I am not going to over-prescribe what we do. My main thing is just to say that we should care and leave lots of margin on how we go about and do that. So every society marginalized someone, I might even go as far as to say that every person is at least tempted to marginalize someone. And if you would be so brave as, and so humble as to admit that, um, you might make sense of what I'm going to say today. So who might be marginalized in our society? What about the elderly? 
Do you know that 11 million or 28% of people age 65 or older live alone? That number doubles once they reach 65, or excuse me, 75. And as there's uh, social contacts begin to fall away due to retirement or even death, isolation sets in, isolation increases, health risks go up, emotional risk goes up. They're, most, they're more likely to experience physical abuse by the hands of somebody else. They are more likely to be the victim of a scam. The church should be a place where the elderly find a family that's missing in their life. Society marginalizes the elderly because their economic value goes down as their age increases. They don't know how to type. They don't know how to use a computer. The church should engage them and care for them. What about orphans? Now, on the, on the elderly and orphans, uh, I mean, the Bible is just like super clear. I mean, I mean, there's just oodles of verses that we should look after and care for those, the elderly and the orphans. It says in James 1, 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, colon, visit orphans and widows or the elderly in their affliction, those who have to make it on their own. Psalm 82, just a two of 2,000. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Full stop. No condition. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. There are over 140 million orphans worldwide. Closer to home, there are 2,200 kids in St. Louis in the foster care system. 152 of them are in state care with no adoptive resource identified. Children and youth enter foster care system because of neglect or abuse. There are over... 15,000 such cases in the St. Louis area that are reported. 176 in Ozark County, 2,922 in Jefferson County, 1,804 in Franklin County. And I'm so encouraged. There are people, there are people in this church who are foster parents. And they are uh, adoptive parents. They've adopted or they're in the process of adopting. And I think that's awesome. I think that represents the Father heart of God who looked at our status as eternally orphaned and he adopted us in, our fam- in his family. We are adopted. And I'm grateful for those of us who are, have adopted or are considering adopting. I do think, though, for a church our size, it should be more of us. What about the financially poor? 25,000 people in our world die every day because of starvation. One-third of all children will not make it to their fifth birthday because of malnutrition. Two million children die every year because of dehydration. In St. Louis City alone, 40% of children live below the poverty line. 1,328 of them are homeless God declares in Psalm 29, 7, the righteous care about justice for the poor. There's that word care. There's that word justice. There's that word poor. But the wicked have no such concern. I'm encouraged that the financially poor are, is a growing concern here at Jubilee. We moved actually down here into this city location 10 years ago uh, because we, were, we had a growing heart to engage 
the, to engage the poor. And since then, community groups have engaged the poor, have engaged their communities, have found those who are below the poverty line, found ways to serve them, found ways to bless them, found ways uh, to express the love of Christ, and that has spread to our other locations in Kirkwood, at the lake, and in Washington. In the past two years, Jubilee has given away over $100,000 uh, to serve the needs of the poor among us and our surrounding communities, and we're looking for ways to do that more and more and more. One of the cool things that's happened in the past year is we've signed up with something called the Care Portal, which I want to show you a quick video that talks a little bit about why and talks a bit about how. Will you show that video, guys? God has always called his people to care for the most vulnerable where they are. The church wants to respond and is responding, but it can be daunting and overwhelming to think about child welfare in the church and how this all fits together. Where do I fit in? But there is a way for the church to engage child welfare and really help the, those in need most. So in order to understand this problem, we use what we call the grid. When you talk about child welfare from prevention of keeping the family together, or foster care, kids having been removed that need a temporary home, or adoption, they need a permanent home, or transition from being a 17, 18 year old to becoming an adult, that is the spectrum of child welfare and the church needs to get engaged across the entire spectrum. But the ways that we can engage vary, from physical needs and investing in people, to relational needs and walking with the hurting people, to family needs, becoming home for children who have no place to call home. The grid is a simple way to understand that the church is here to meet the needs of the broken within the child welfare system. And now there is an easy way for anyone to begin. The process starts with a child welfare worker logging into the care portal and entering the child's needs right into the system. Then, using GeoRadius technology, the care portal quickly sends an email with all the details to participating churches that want to help families right in their own backyard. Each church then makes their congregation aware of the need, and if a member steps up to help, the church contact responds back using the original email. The caseworker then connects the church with the child or family. It is easier than it has ever been for you, for the church, to engage this crisis and answer God's call to care for the vulnerable. So here's the question. Are you willing to receive an email? So if you weren't quite tracking with the arrows to all the stuff, I mean, I had to watch like three times to figure it out. But basically, if you're, if you're like, man, I want to be aware of the needs that could be around me, maybe even my neighborhood. Um, you just simply um, need to uh, sign up for the, the care portal. In fact, on this card that, that was mentioned earlier, you can just briefly write sign up for uh, the care portal. Uh, and that is a way that um, you know, our churches sign up and, they, and we could pass along the needs for the way that you can directly meet those needs um, if you'd like to do that. What about those in bondage to the sex trade. Those in bondage to the sex trade are often drugged or tricked into an unspeakable existence as a commodity for sex. Um, Sex traffickers use a variety of methods to condition their victims, including confinement, starvation, beatings, physical abuse, rape, threats of violence, to themselves and to their families, forced drug use, 
threats of shame, health risk, drug and alcohol addiction, physical injuries, broken bones, concussions, burns, traumatic brain injury, memory loss, dizziness, headaches, numbness, sexually transmitted disease, psychological harm, shame, grief, fear, distrust, hatred of men, hatred of self, suicide, suicidal thoughts, post-traumatic stress disorder, acute anxiety, depression, insomnia, physical hyper-alertness, self-loathing that is long-lasting and resistant to change. There There are 21 million men and women, mostly women, in slavery worldwide under these conditions. It is an estimated $150 billion industry. They're unsure. They don't have exact numbers about the St. Louis area, but the FBI believes that St. Louis is one of the top destinations for sex sex traffickers because of our highway system. Now, that should bother us. Uh, That should bother us that it happens anywhere in the world, but it should really bother us that it happens in our city as we go to work, as we go to school, as we go about our day doing what we do. There are men and women under this kind of bondage actively being oppressed, actively being abused. And I don't have solutions for this. There are some organizations that have good places to start, but this is what I do know. I do know this is true out of Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And if you are a Christian here today, uh, the the Spirit of the Lord is upon you too. Because He has anointed you, He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me, He sent you too. You've been anointed, you've been sent to do what? To preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all those who are oppressed. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. What about the foreigner and the refugee? The scriptures are also clear that we should look out for the foreigner and the immigrant, to welcome him, to show hospitality to her. Um, And I know this is a political debate, and uh, But I, I want to be clear about what I believe where a Christian should fall on the issue. I'm not going to speak to where a Christian should fall in terms of politics, but I, I, I can speak about what the Bible tells the Christian to think about, the foreigner, the immigrant, the refugee. Um, number one, we are called as Christians to love our neighbor even at our own expense and perhaps the risk of our own lives. I do know that. Uh, The parable of the Good Samaritan, you could read about this in Luke 10, but Jesus' uh, instructions were just that. There was a religious guy trying to get out of uh, treating a Samaritan like a neighbor. So he says, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells a parable that basically means, uh, well, everybody's your neighbor. And the real question isn't who is your neighbor, but are you a neighbor? And he tells a story about a Samaritan that this guy would have despised, how he was the one who showed mercy. He was the one at the risk of his life and at great expense to him financially, he took in a stranger. 
Number two, I just kind of practically say there's a lot of fear that some American ha- Americans have that is unfounded. Um, there is a one in 3.64 billion chance that you will be killed by a refugee this year. And if those odds concern you, might I suggest that you never leave your house. <laughs> that you should never go in the bathtub, you should never drive a car, you should basically live in bubble wrap and keep the temperature at 72 all the time, a doctor nearby, and a bunch of other precautions. Our protector, our great hope, um, is not a well-defined border. It's not an army. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's our provider. He is our protector. And he has a well-worn path that he went down, that he wants us to follow it's called the Calvary path that leads to a cross. So if the reason why you are not up for this is because you're worried about how it will affect your comfort, your security, and even your life, the Christian is called to have no such concern. Paul gloriously says in Galatians 5, Brothers and sisters, you've been called to freedom. That's what Christ came for. He came to give you your freedom. And I rejoice in the freedom that Christ has given me. And I rejoice in the freedom that I have as an American. But Paul gives us this warning. He says, do not use your freedom for an opportunity for the flesh. Meaning, don't use that freedom to be about you. Rather, love your neighbor. Serve your neighbor. And look, you know what? The risk to our lives is, is in question, maybe. And maybe there is a risk to our lives. But what isn't um, in question is the risk to the lives of those who are refugees. If you would be willing to read about what's happening in places like Syria, for example. It's not the only place, but it is the place everyone's talking about. It is horrific. That is happening to Christians and Muslims alike. The torture that they are experiencing, um, the murder, the abuse, is unthinkable. And we should care about that. We should care about that. That should concern us. How, How much should it concern us? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You love your freedom, love it for your neighbor. You love your comfort, love it for your neighbor. You strategize uh, to have enough food on the table. You strategize to have nice vacation. Do that for your neighbor. You have 600 chances a year if you live in St. Louis. There are 600 refugees that come here every year from all over the world. And they are people who are escaping hardship. Who come here for a second chance. Some of them are welcomed by Americans and I'm grateful for that. And some of them are not. Some of them are taken advantage of. Some of them are abused. By a country 
that they are seeking refuge in. You have opportunities if God would so lead you. What about the unborn? Every person is created in God's image, and that includes human beings at the earliest stages of development when they are the most vulnerable and they are the most weak. No one is less productive than when they are in the womb, but God even says that in the womb, he knows us and he values us. It says in Psalm 139, for, for you, O God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God says he knows our days, even when we are in the womb. Culture says they are not humans yet. Super Bowl last year, the National Abortion Rights Action League tweeted, hashtag not buying it, that Doritos ad using anti-choice tactic of humanizing fetuses. Um, God told us through scripture thousands of years ago that human life begins at conception. And as science advances they are becoming more and more aware that that is true. In fact, Professor Gordon from the Mayo Clinic says, by all the criteria of modern molecular biology, life is present from the moment of conception. Professor Matthews Roth from Harvard University Medical School says, it is incorrect to say that biological data cannot be decisive. It is scientifically correct to say that an individual life begins at conception. It is incorrect for someone to humanize a fetus because already, by definition, a fetus is human. You cannot humanize a fetus. You can only dehumanize a fetus. By the third week, the baby's heart is beating. The fourth week, the brain develops. Hands, feet take shape. During eight to 12 weeks, and most, the most common period for abortions occur, occur, occur Happen? <laughs> bidi, 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 that's all, folks. Um, they're already displaying right or left-hand dominance, rolling over in the womb. Week nine, thumb-sucking begins. Ten weeks, the baby yawns, fingernails, toenails developed. By 22 weeks, the baby is viable enough to live outside the womb, and yet 1% of abortions still happen at that time. Now, that may not sound like much, but that's 10,000 babies a year who can feel pain. Now, the reasons are all over the board, but they often get misconstrued, uh, and I won't get into that, but here are the stats. 3,000 unborn are killed every day in America. That's one out of five pregnancies. Studies vary, but upwards of 90% of all babies discovered to have Down syndrome are aborted. It could be true that in the coming years, the only place that you will see a child with Down syndrome will be in the children's ministry of a gospel-believing church. They could be 
all but eradicated. Now, the response to this is to care, but it is not to shake our heads and wave our finger. Um, and we must not criticize until our hearts break and are willing to do something about it. And, my mean, and what I mean by doing something about it, I don't necessarily mean to write your congressman or protest. Um, but there are a lot of women in this situation who are f- faced with an economic crisis, really an impossible situation. To raise a baby is very expensive. To have an abortion is free. And they are in poverty. The church must care for these babies. The church must care for these women. We are all subject to be blinded by a cultural bias to neglect the vulnerable and the weak among us. I said it in the beginning. Every society marginalizes someone. Every society And to marginalize them, to oppress them, you must dehumanize them. And you can find any culture who has done that. And if we had more time, I would get into that. By the way, my fourth disclaimer is this message is going to be longer than normal. Okay. Um, Here's something else I know. One out of three women by the age of 45 will have had an abortion. Statistically, it's not hard to imagine that there are dozens of women in this room right now who have had an abortion. And no one else in this room knows about it. And you are afraid for anyone to find out. And you are living with a big burden. And I just want you to know that God, I want you to know that myself, the leaders of this church, the people of this church do not judge you, do not criticize you, do not want you to feel any condemnation. Jesus came to this world not to condemn the world, but to save it and to release it and to free it. And Jesus and myself wants you to experience grace and forgiveness and freedom. The enemy of your soul lied to you Other people under that influence lied to you and coerced you even if you feel like it was your own decision to go through with this. And the enemy of your soul is accusing you every day and every quiet moment that you have. And God wants to relieve you from that. He wants to release you from that. And you are in a safe place. There are women in this church who have found grace and who have had abortions, who have found grace and mercy at the cross of Christ and through the encouragement and counsel of this community. And I hope, I know it's scary, but I hope that you would, for for you, that you would take that bold step and experience a freedom that you have yet to experience. One more. There's racism. I 
Our country has had 90 years of Jim Crow laws and 60 years of separate but equal laws, but why is it still a problem? Now, maybe some of you would say, is it still a problem? Yeah, it's still a problem. The reason why it's still a problem is because they're just laws. And laws do not govern the human heart. Laws are nothing more than peer pressure. One of the central truths of the gospel is that laws don't change your heart. They, 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 they you can cause you to keep rules, but they do not address the un, undercurrent of sinful thoughts and patterns. Racism being one of those. Um, entire Christian denominations have embraced the sin of segregation. Bible colleges, individuals, the church is wounded by this. Our country is wounded by this, um, and. There are places where that is still being uh, is still true, and it could be at some place in your in your own heart in your own life if you're willing to look at that. But let me just let's just consider some more statistics. Median net worth for in 2010 for a white family was 134 thousand dollars. Median net worth. The median net worth for a black family was 11 thousand dollars. The median wealth for a single white woman was $41,000. The median net worth for a single black woman was $120. As it stands now, one in three black men will go to prison at some point in their lifetime. That means that there are more African Americans in American jails than there were in slavery at the time of the Civil War. Now listen, the causes to all of this are very complex. And I'm not interested in engaging that conversation, and I don't claim to have the answers. But here's what I know. This should break our hearts. We should not be content with any person, any human being, being marginalized or being oppressed for any reason. We should seek... We should, we, we should be appalled at the circumstances of some of our brothers and sisters. The church should be considered insane, but not because of our politics. The church should be considered insane because it talks about a bloody cross and a man from Nazareth rising from the dead. That's why we should be considered insane. Um, We will be Americans' best if we will not be Americans first. We'll be Americans best if we will not be Americans first. Too often, both on conservative issues and liberal issues, we'll tweet and retweet, you know, and embrace what somebody says just simply because they affirm our political position and we think they're right on the issues. So if you're angry at the same person I'm angry at, you know, you must be okay. But it would be a tragedy to get the right person elected, to get the right laws passed, but to get the wrong Christ. Conservatives tend to value the Christian subculture over Christ-like compassion. Liberals tend to value political correctness and the desire to be a part of the cultural elite over Christ-like integrity. Compassion is wholehearted action so that others experience love and justice. Integrity is, whole life, is a whole life connected to God and what he wants. 
a lack of compassion or a lack of integrity is at the root of what the Bible calls worldliness. Worldly means that we, acqui- that we get accustomed to the priorities and the agenda of the systems now governing the world. James 1, 2, 7, I mentioned this earlier. It says that we should be unspotted from the world, which means that we should display gospel integrity. That we don't speak for a political party, but we speak for Jesus and, and first and foremost. And that we should care for widows and orphans, that we de- demonstrate gospel compassion. Abortion, torture, euthanasia, unjust war, racial injustice, the harassment of immigrants, these things are not simply mean, and they are mean. All of them are mean. All of them are despicable, in fact. But more than that, they are insurgency against the kingdom of God and the image of God himself, summed up in Jesus Christ, who was familiar with sorrow and all of our weaknesses. He didn't come to earth fully arrived. He came as an embryo, and then he was a fetus, and then he was an infant, and then he was a man. He was conceived as an orphan with no biological father. He was adopted by a carpenter named Joseph. He lived as a migrant refugee in a foreign land. He was poor with no place to lay his head. His only possession was a tunic that was raffled off by the Roman soldiers. Jesus didn't just die for victims of injustice. He was a victim of injustice. A few years back, really a decade ago, Joanne Terrell, an African-American writer, wrote in Time magazine, and this lady had an awful childhood. Uh, Her mother was murdered by her boyfriend, and the injustice in her life and her people turned her against God. And she tells about one day where she... Or the gospel kind of clicked in her head. She says, suddenly as the teacher was talking about the cross, I had a revelation. I realized that Jesus not only suffered for us, but he suffered with us. I realized that Jesus knew what it was like to go under the lash. Jesus knew what it was like to stand up to people in power. Jesus knew what it was like to experience a corrupt justice system. And suddenly I realized that on the cross, Jesus Christ was lynched. And it went right through me. Jesus did not just suffer for me. She said, Jesus suffered with me. We live in a world of injustice. And I'm afraid that that will not stop until Jesus comes back. But we don't serve a God who was immune from it. And we do not serve a God who will not one day end it all who will end, who will make every wrong right, who will wipe away every tear, who will end all wars. On the cross, he, des- he who deserved justice got condemnation so that we who deserve condemnation can get justice and live for justice. The way that to see this is that we have to see the mercy Jesus has shown us. We have to see that we were the ones rebellious. We were the ones who lived and acted out injustice. And he took it upon us so that we could receive mercy. We deserved, we deserved to be judged. We deserved to be condemned. But we received mercy because he was condemned on our behalf. And now that frees us not to condemn others, 
Not to get on a soapbox. But to love kindness. To walk humbly. And to seek justice. Why don't you get out your communication card?